Welcome to the Christchurch London podcast. To hear talks from each of our services, please visit ChristchurchLondon.org. I'm just going to read our passage for this evening, um, and it's Daniel chapter 1, and the uh, word should be behind me as well. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, along with some of the articles from the temple of God. These he carried off to the temple of his God in Babylonia, and put in the treasure house of his God. Then the king ordered Ashpenaz, chief of his court officials, to bring into the king's service some of the Israelites from the royal family and the nobility, young men without any physical defect, handsome, showing aptitude for every kind of learning, well-informed, quick to understand, and qualified to serve in the king's palace. He was to teach them the language and literature of the Babylonians. The king assigned them a daily amount of food and wine from the king's table. They were to be trained for three years, and after that, they were to enter the king's service. Among those who were chosen were some from Judah, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. The chief official gave them new names. To Daniel, the name Belteshazzar. To Hananiah, Shadrach. To Mishael, Meshach. And to Azariah, Abednego. But Daniel resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and wine. And he asked the chief official for permission not to defile himself in this way. Now God had caused the official to show favor and compassion to Daniel. But the official told Daniel, I am afraid of my lord the king who has assigned your food and drink. Why should he see you looking worse than the other young men of your age? The king would then have my head because of you. Daniel then said to the guard whom the chief official had appointed over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, please test your servants for 10 days. Give us nothing but vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then compare our appearance with that of the young men who eat the royal food and treat your servants in accordance with what you see. So he agreed to this and tested them for 10 days. At the end of the 10 days, they looked healthier and better nourished than any of the young men who ate the royal food. So the guard took away their choice food and the wine they were to drink and gave them vegetables instead. To these four young men, God gave knowledge and understanding of all kinds of literature and learning. 
and Daniel could understand visions and dreams of all kinds. At the end of the time set by the king to bring them into his service, the chief official presented them to Nebuchadnezzar. The king talked with them, and he found none equal to Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. So they entered the king's service. In every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king questioned them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters in his whole kingdom. And Daniel remained there until the first year of King Cyrus. This is the word of the Lord. Let's welcome David as he comes to speak. Thank you. Thank you, Natalie. Thank you, Natalie. Fantastically read. Evening, everyone. Hope you're doing well. Uh, We have got loads to get through and we are almost certainly going to do things a bit differently. I'm going to preach, we're going to do ministry, and then I'm going to preach again. So you have got a ministry sandwich coming up. Uh, this evening. Uh, I'd like to start, though, with just a couple of observations about what has been happening here the last 24 hours. So that my first observation, having been here a few hours, was there's lots of people here for the first time, which is fantastic. Not only that, but a number of you are particularly courageous because you've come by yourselves without necessarily knowing lots more people. And we want you to know we are, you are so very, very welcome. And it feels like we have a more diverse bunch here than we've ever had. That that is something that the Lord is doing. So if you feel too old to be part of Christ Church London, or you feel too young to be part of Christ Church London, then you're almost certainly being brought here by the Lord. That's part of what he's doing. Yesterday evening, for that wonderful time of worship we had, there were five of us on the front row, and three of us, <laughs> three of the others, were under 18. That has never, ever happened before in the life of Christchurch London, and I know what I'm talking about. <laughs> and it was a wonderful thing to see, just as we got to enjoy seeing some of them baptised earlier today. If you feel too rich to be part of Christchurch London... Or if you feel too poor to be part of Christchurch London, then it's almost certain that the Lord has brought you here because he's expanding us, not just in terms of numbers, but in terms of types of people. He's broadening the family. If you feel too white to be part of Christchurch London (laughs) or too black to be part of Christchurch London, then it's certain that the Lord has brought you here because that is what he's doing amongst us. A snake every now and then sheds its skin. It's like it becomes a new animal. Churches from time to time replace a lot of their people. Somewhere like London, where the natural churn is so great, it happens faster than in other places. That is part of what the Lord is doing amongst us now. It's like he's bringing out this new church. New people, new breadth, new diversity, and new 
leaders. One of the best things for me these last 24 hours is watching people lead us on stage. And I remember their first time singing at Christ Church London. They were timid that day. They were not in the last 24 hours. We saw the full glory of their gifts and they're serving the church. And this evening as I looked around I could see... I think what the Lord was doing in others of you. So if you feel like, you're, feel like the Lord's speaking to you about serving in a new way or leading in a new way or playing a new role, then I want to suggest that is almost certainly the Lord. And if this resonates with you, I want to encourage you. The kingdom is here. The kingdom is at hand. In other words, there are handfuls of it to grab hold of this evening. And I want you to grab hold of handfuls of it and take it because the Lord is raising people up and the Lord is changing the church and it's a glorious thing. That wasn't in my notes, but that was a start. Okay, here we go. Four things that happen, four steps in a cycle that the church goes through with the broader culture or society. Number one, a small group of believers who are fervent and committed and love Jesus are gathered together. Stage two, they grow. Stage three, they start to shape the culture. The artists and the teachers and the bankers and the social workers and everyone else starts to think, I love Jesus and I'm proud of that. And I'm going to let it affect everything that I do. Step four, the culture starts to shape the church. The church swaps influence for popularity. And it starts to fall as a result. And what's required at that point is step one. A small group of believers who are committed to one another. That cycle looks a bit like this. Ed, if we can have it up. Small group, it grows, it affects the culture, and is affected by the culture. All right, Christchurch London, being a bright bunch, where are we at now in that cycle? Shout out some, what do you think? All right, it's going to need to, there was someone over here. Okay, Peter says Growing. Affected by the culture, someone over here. How about someone towards the back? Growth. You think it affects the culture. Okay, well, in, do you know the church actually in the UK at this point in time is shrinking in numbers. It's growing in London, largely thanks to immigration. But, pretty much, but everywhere else it is actually declining. And I think there are, signs, there are signs of growth in some places. But I think we're being affected by the culture. I think the culture is evangelizing us more than we're evangelizing the culture. Let me just give you a few examples of this. Hyper-individualism isn't just something which is shaping the culture, but it's shaping you and me. What do I mean by hyper-individualism? It's basically that me and my happiness matters more than anything else. 
and my obligations to God, my family, my friends, and my church come a definite second. How about consumerism? That also gets under our skin and in our hearts. Consumerism says, I will fill my life with things that meet my needs. If church stops meeting my needs, I'll go somewhere else. I will not regard myself as part of a family, as drafted into an army, or a key support in a building. Because this is about what I need. Sexual ethics has not just changed extraordinarily since the mid-60s in the broader culture, but it's shaping us as well. It goes something like that, this. Anything is okay as long as it doesn't hurt anybody else. Pause. There is nothing that you do that doesn't hurt someone else. As one of our English poets said long ago, no man or woman is an island. Everything that you and I do has consequences. But that goes on, nobody has a right to tell me what to do in bed. Back to hyper-individualism. Do you remember the prophet Samson? Or the judge Samson, full of the Spirit of God because of a vow, a private vow that he'd made with God to stay pure, which was signified him by the not touching wine and the not cutting of his hair. And we all know what happened. After extraordinary acts of power under the influence of the Spirit, he gives it all up and he trades popularity, or in his case, intimacy, and it's not long after that that you see this man who had a great reputation, honored at one time by God and people, with arms that clearly used to have bulging muscles, but they were now flaccid. His enemies had dragged his eyes, had gouged his eyes out. His head was hung in shame. And that is a picture of the church that has been invaded by the world. That is the church in stage four. So my personal opinion is that God is speaking to us about returning to the characteristics of a small group of people who are fervently committed to God. Now let me just clarify a couple of things because that word small could be misleading. I still believe that God has a very special plan for the church. I have no doubt that the church is to play a significant part in shaping cities like our own. And that the best days for the church are ahead. But I believe that what the Spirit is saying to the church right now is calling us to purity, to holiness and to devotion to him. And this evening I want to look at a young person in the scriptures who was caught at that point in, in section four, needing to go back into being a small group. And I want to take us and I want to ask you to imagine the young man Daniel stumbling across the Syrian desert 
on his way to Babylon. We know very little about him. Other than Babylon, that's been the superpower for a thousand years in those parts, had finally had enough of Jerusalem. And they descended on them like hornets. And they picked out, and this we know about Daniel, because we're told he was of a noble or royal family. They picked out the best and the brightest of the youngsters, and they took them off. Days and days marching across the deserts. The other thing we know about Daniel, unusually, was he was devout. We know nothing else. We have no idea how he came to love Jesus so fiercely and courageously. I've thought about that a lot recently. How did it happen? I wonder whether he was sitting on his grandmother's knee. And she would whisper the stories. I wonder whether he'd been a recalcitrant and rebellious youth. Someone can identify with that here? (laughs) Who was apprehended by God and their life turned around. What's clear, I would argue, is he was raised in a family of faith. Because when you start to read what he was like, he was drawing on something. In my imagination, I've gone back to the grandmother or the mother sitting with him on his lap. Here's what I imagine her whispering to him. The stories that she told him. Daniel, let me tell you about, she wouldn't have used this term, but now that you understand it, let me tell you about stage one. The people of God were caught in a slave labor state. The authorities were trying to wipe us out. But there was Moses and his family and a few others and they loved God fiercely. And they stayed faithful to him. Daniel, it became stage two as they went through the desert and they found the promised land. And there with incredible miracles and great bravery, they started to grow and flourish. Daniel, it wasn't long then before the Davidic realm, the greatest of all Hebrew kings... He built a temple. The worship there was even better than the Ashburnham retreat. (laughs) The king led the dancing. We'll do some dancing tomorrow if the band give us some songs we can move our feet to. The poor were cared for. Right the way around the Near East, the known world, God became famous for what was happening in Israel. The nation, under God's blessing, was shaping the world. After David came Solomon, the hand of God was on Solomon. He was so wise, the nations flooded to Jerusalem. Even the Queen of Sheba came to see what God had done. But then it all went wrong. Solomon traded influence for popularity and he decided, I want to be like the other nations who are coming and telling me that God is using me. And so he started marrying the women of other nations. And the world started to invade the church. Solomon's sons led to a division in Israel, Judah and Israel, Rehoboam and Jeroboam. 
by the time we get to Daniel, it is no longer exuberant, spirit-filled Davidic worship in the streets of Jerusalem. Oh, no. They have exchanged worship of the true God, and they're now worshiping the Queen of Heaven, the Babylonian God for sexual attraction. Daniel, as a boy, would have heard the prophet Jeremiah. Read Jeremiah 7 before you get to bed, if you get a chance. Jeremiah is standing at the temple gate, and he's speaking to the Israelites. And he's used his words like prostitution, spiritual adultery. He's like, you are trusting on the temple, and it's not going to be enough to hold you. You are in real trouble. But the problem was they're given their hearts to the queen of heaven and Babylonian ideas long ago. Now, when you've given your hearts already, then when the armies come, there's no battle. The battle's already been won. Remember, that's how the spiritual life works. Spiritual life's not out there, it's in there. And so I think Daniel's grandmother would have been saying, Daniel, this is how it is. It's not how it's always been. I appreciate there's some imagination there, but you get the point. But I do think that as Daniel is moving towards Babylon, his heart is beating like mad. Because he's like, this is going to be my ultimate test. Is it possible to stay faithful here? He knew what the Babylonians wanted from him. They wanted, as we read, they wanted to make him a Babylonian. He knew he had three years of indoctrination. Three years of being taught the language and the literature of the Babylonians. Why? Because they wanted to make him a Babylonian. He's going there and he knows that this is the most powerful city that has ever existed. And he is being offered a slice of the action. Which young man is going to say no to that? He knows this is the height of luxury. This is the place of Babylon's hanging gardens and other unheard of qualities of ease and luxury. The tacit deal is this. You guys come We'll give you a life you could never dream of. Play the game. Not only that, but he knew as he was going into the world of high politics that he was going to a dangerous world. A world where the Babylonian king at a moment could say, execute. I mean, you read it numbers of times in the first six chapters of Daniel. At one point, the king's so fed up, he wants to wipe out all of his wise men. Wise was obviously... When young men went to fight in the First World War, their fiancés never knew whether they were coming back. I don't know who waved Daniel off in the ruins of Jerusalem, but they would have had no idea whether he would have ever come back again. So his heart was beating. He was like, I don't know whether I can do this or not. But I'm desperate to hang on to God. I'm desperate to walk with him. 
It was one of those crossroads moments. Who knows that God brings us to moments of big decision in our lives. Many of us have had that. This was one of those for Daniel. Daniel, and the first test came almost immediately, unsurprisingly. When the Lord raises you up or there's a change in season, typically tests come immediately. That's exactly what happens with Daniel. For this one, it's a purity test. Will he eat and he drink uh, food that's likely been offered to idols? And he knows this is the moment. And it's just a quick aside, but he's gracious and he's tender and he's well-mannered and respectful in the way he does it. But he says, no, I'm not doing this. He trusts God. Daniel takes the road less traveled. The road that I believe God is calling each of us to walk right now. Not a few of us. He's not just speaking to the worship team. He's not just speaking to those of you in the front row. He's speaking to every single one of us. And he's calling us to clarity with our walk with God, not assimilation with worldly powers that promise much and deliver very little. I believe that this evening is about consecration as much as other things. That's a moment when we say, Lord, I'm yours. And I'm going to give an opportunity for every one of us to say that before we're done. Daniel, of course, is not the only person. He and his friends, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego, are not the only group that have ever been a small group who then grew and went round again. Let me suggest or remind you of another one. Irish monks. It's the fourth century. The Romans have just left Britannia and everything collapses. The economy collapses. There is no writing in Britannia for another hundred years. The church collapses. The few libraries that they are start to get burnt. People arrive more interested in the jewels on the books than the books. Toss the books away, take the jewels. So you've got a total breakdown in parts of Northern Europe and the UK, as we now call it, of culture and of Christianity. And it is reversed by a small group who start to come to faith under Patrick, who's actually a, an English Roman who God called, long, amazing story, to come to Ireland. And he started evangelizing, and for all sorts of reasons I won't go into, they started monasteries. Philip and I were out in Ireland earlier this year and we got out this map of these monasteries I mean it was revival in the end I mean but they made they did these monasteries at the top of mountains and in the middle of lakes they even did one 12 miles into the Atlantic Ocean when we went there were no ships that were prepared. We were there in April, was it? There were no ships prepared to land on that island where the monks went out every day around the year. Now, I'm not 
this is not a call for monastery building. And I want to suggest the New Testament says that's unnecessary. But I want you to catch the flavor and the spirit of it, which was we need God. And we need to get out of this craziness. And we need to have a period of consecration. It ended, you know, with them going up to Iona. Um, my granddaughter's called Iona. Great name. Because they planted a monastery there that planted churches all up the uh, side of Scotland, the, the west side of Scotland. And then they came around and they started coming down the north side of the UK and they started evangelizing right across Europe. And historians will say that the communities that were created across Europe saved Europe in many ways. But it started with a small group who longed for holiness. And you know what I find most interesting about these Irish? Was that many of the leaders should have been kings. Tribal society. So there were many kings in Ireland. And one after another, these young men said, no, I'm going to lead God's people. That is more important to me than being a ruler of these people. And I want you to get that in your heart as well. Because I want to suggest that there is nothing more important than God's purposes. That doesn't mean everybody works for the church. We can't afford you all, <laughs> apart from anything else. It means that we all do whatever we're meant to be doing, wherever we're meant to be doing it, with a sense of God's call and looking to renew and bring renewal wherever we are. Three habits. Three habits that Daniel developed during this time, which I want to suggest are critical for us. Who knows habits are important? There's this wonderful phrase which says that you choose your habits or you form your habits and then your habits form you. That's why they're so important. It's the things you do every day. It's the things you do once a week, but every Saturday morning or every Sunday evening. And as you do them over months and months and years, they start to change you. Three habits. The first was that Daniel prayed. Why do you think Daniel prayed? I want to suggest that the main reason he prayed was for himself. He needed to pray to stay alive. He needed to pray to stay distinctive. Daniel, like anyone else in the city of Babylon, would have felt the tug of ambition. Remember, Babylon is Mr. Success. It's saying with everything about it, come and have part of a me. Be like me and share my success. And so if Daniel was to stay walking with God, I suspect he needed to pray every day just to keep his head straight. Because there was another city. You know what that other city was? It was Jerusalem. Here's what the psalmist said. He said, by the rivers of Babylon. Boniem turned this into a very famous. <laughs> by the rivers of Babylon, we sat and wept when we remembered what? Zion. If I forget you, Jerusalem, may I forget my right, may my right hand forget its skill. It's that fundamental. May my tongue cling to the roof of my mouth if I don't remember you. If I do not consider Babylon, no, sorry. If I do not consider Jerusalem my highest joy. 
And I think you get it, these two cities represent two entirely different value systems. So who's felt, you don't need to put your hands up for this one, who's felt the tug of London? Who's felt the allure of extraordinary amounts of money? Or of as much sex as you want? Or whatever, it's all on, you don't need me to tell you, it's all on offer on our streets. You don't even need to go on the streets. Who's felt the tug of that in this room? I think Daniel prayed because it was the only way he could keep his heart right and keep his heart straight. I think some mornings he would have woken up feeling utterly and totally dejected. I imagine there were mornings when he woke up and thought, last night was dreadful. It was the public celebration of Marduk, King Marduk, the king god of Babylon's success, and of the fact that the items from Jerusalem's temple are now in Marduk's temple. And everyone was celebrating and wanting me to join. Why am I bothering to live this way? It's over. It's finished. That's when he needed to pray. I'm sure you don't ever feel that way. But there's times where I'm like, why am I doing this? And at times like that, I need to read his word and I need to hear his voice in my heart. You don't pray because it's a good thing to do. You pray because I don't think most of us will survive otherwise. Not in the sort of bright, shining, godly way that we want to. Paul says, shine like stars in the middle of this depraved and crooked generation. Well, if he could write that to the Philippines, I think that's pretty relevant to London too. The big hero of Lindisfarne, one of the monasteries that got planted from Ireland via Iona to northern England was St. Cuthbert. He was the leader of the monastery and he had a powerful healing ministry. (laughs) People would come from all over to have his hands laid on him and get healed. So it made him really busy. So he'd gone there to pray and then he didn't pray. Anyone ever gone to pray? So there was another island just beyond Holy Island. You could only get to it when the tide was out. And so he had a prayer bunker built for him there. Because he knew that he could walk there. He knew that people would only come when the tide was out. When the tide was in, he could have four hours or six hours. When he could pray and be with the Lord. Had windows built into the bunker, but he had them built above eye level. So that he wasn't distracted. He was desperate for devotion and he found somewhere to go. I've got two questions for every one of us in this room. Do you have somewhere to go where you can get seclusion and devotion with Jesus? Do you have somewhere? And if you don't, find a room and put a lock on the door. Throw your computer away. Whatever it takes. But my second question is this. Have you got a place... Do you use it? Do you use it?
I want to call you with all the grace that I can muster, with the grace of God, which is love entices us to pray. Daniel prayed. Secondly, he invested in his craft. Daniel's craft was advice to powerful people. That's what he did. He was like a special advisor, come member of the royal household all in one. We've all got a craft that the Lord has given us to strengthen God's people and to serve the world, our two callings. Daniel invests in his for three years, we're told in verse 4. He gives himself to the language and the literature of the Babylonians. Can I encourage you and call you to invest in your craft, whatever that is. Invest in it. Because if you will do that, it's likely that what happened to Daniel will happen to you. Because then in verse 17 it says, God gave knowledge and understanding of Babylonian literature. No, of all kinds of literature and learning. The Babylonians wanted Daniel to do one thing. Daniel works at it and gets an understanding much broader and much bigger. That's what happens when we invest in our craft. But it doesn't stop there. In verse 20, it says this. In every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king, that's meant to be the king, which the kind questioned him, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters in the whole kingdom. Ten times? That's the hand of the Lord. It's the hand of the Lord. Invest in your craft. Invest in your craft. And you never know where, the, where it will take you. The doors it will open. The opportunities for service that it brings with it. I love the way, I won't pick out any particular, I love the way these guys served us tonight. But that wasn't a few, that was a lifetime, Right? <laughs> a lifetime of playing, driving their kids, their parents mad <laughs> as they invested in their craft. That's how it is. That's what it takes if you want to be 10 times better. I mean, just if you do. These Irish monks found that people started coming to them from all over Europe. They came from North Africa, scholars with their scrolls. They came from Europe. With the classics, which were in danger of being, you know, no more. If I said no more Euclid or Aristotle, some of us would go, hooray! But no more architectural understanding, no maths, no logic, no, could have all gone. So they caught it and they started copying it. This was their craft. And then they added the scriptures and they started copying the scriptures. The most famous one, though a little later in time, but the most famous one, the Book of Kells. I don't know whether any of you have seen it. A couple of images here. Ed, if you can do the next slide, please. <laughs> You're playing with me. These, the Book of Kells, it was said, is so beautiful that it couldn't have been done by men. It had to be done by angels. Sounds to me like 10 times better. It's when our craft gets mixed up with our passion, gets mixed up with our longing for God. And you never know what will happen as a result. As we serve the church and we serve the world. And finally, they didn't give up on the supernatural. They didn't give up. Don't give up on the supernatural, brothers and sisters. Do not give up on the supernatural. It is what should distinguish us. It comes in all sorts of shapes and forms. 
I love the way it's introduced in Daniel 1. It's just as a, you know, he's 10 times better. Oh, and God gave understanding of all kinds of dreams to Daniel. Like, how did that happen? Gabby, give me some more on that one. The supernatural happens and works in all sorts of different ways in people's lives. I've got a really good friend. He's about the most winsome individual you can ever imagine. When he walks into a room, I always want to go and talk with him. I don't know what it is about him. It's the favor of the Lord. He ended up, he's advised prime ministers and he's advised kings. And it's just the grace of God. The most hilarious thing about it is I don't think he can see it and understands why it is. So he's constantly confused as to why he gets asked to do things. But he loves Jesus very much indeed. Now you may say, well, I'm never going to advise a prime minister king. I couldn't care less and it's not my point. My point is that God's favor will rest on you. You know, sometimes in stage one, you know what God's favor is? The grace to suffer well. I've mentioned several times in sermons recently, one of my childhood heroes. Next slide, please, Ed. This one's not as pretty as the last one. It's Pastor Richard Wormbrand, 14 years in jail in Romania, many of them in solitary confinement. Rights of dancing at joy at night. All he had was Jesus, and that was more than he could manage, and his body felt like exploding with exuberance and thanksgiving. The guards thought he was going crazy and gave him more food as a result. The grace of God, that, that's super, I think that's supernatural. Wouldn't you agree? Yeah. So sometimes it's that. Daniel, it was wisdom, and then it was dreams. With you, it may be healing. There was a guy, came out of the Jesus revolution. If, you've, if you want a modern-day revival to have a look at, have a look at the hippies of the early 70s. You see, there's pictures of thousands of them lining the harbour in California waiting to get baptised. I mean, we were excited this afternoon, but I mean, it was nothing compared with. One of those guys, he'd realised during work hours he was working for the government, so he had to do his job. But they didn't have him from the car to his desk and from his desk to the car. And so he decided that from the desk to the car and car to the desk... He would do whatever Jesus told him to. And he ended up with the sick getting healed, with people coming to Christ, with the needy people having their needs met to such an extent that in the end he had to stop working for the government because he didn't have time to do all these other things, which is how it's meant to be. So pray because that puts us into God. That founds us. Then develop your craft. That puts you into the culture. And then trust the Lord for the supernatural. Because that is what he's given us to do. I wonder whether the bank could come back, please.